welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to talk about IS36, impairment of non-financial assets. And I'm joined today by Dave Walters, whose official title is Lord Dave Walters of Hoogan Manor, I've just discovered. Welcome to the studio, Dave. Well, thank you very much for that uh, invitation. <clears throat> I must admit that the, the title was purchased for me as a birthday <laughs> present uh, from my sister, so the title might actually be impaired. <laughs> oh, starting with a joke straight away. Oh, no, don't be silly. I said to Dave, how would you like me to introduce you? I have a technical partner who was, no, 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 <laughs> Lord Dave Walters. So very excited to have a Lord in the studio today. This is very special. And you're talking to us about one of my favourite standards, Mr Walters, IS. 36. Now, we have had a podcast before on impairment, but we focus very much on the cash flow model and where people can go wrong in the cash flows. Um, but we didn't really get into the how you move through the standard and the basics behind impairment and other areas people can get. So let's start at the beginning. What is an impairment? So an impairment arises where essentially what you've got on your balance sheet isn't worth what you're carrying it out. So whether you use it or sell it, you can't recover the value that's on your balance sheet. Uh, and if you're in that situation, you have an impairment. Okay. And do, when, how often do you have to do an impairment? Are there rules around that? There are rules around impairment uh, impairment testing, and essentially they're driven off the nature of the assets that you're testing. So if you're testing goodwill for impairment, then you have to do a test every year. And really that's because goodwill isn't amortised. Other assets, if you were testing... You know, fixed assets, you only test those when you have a trigger for an impairment test, such as, you know, my factory has been destroyed, you know, and that is a trigger that we've advised people on before. Okay, yeah, an obvious one there. What, what other triggers might you have other than, like, destruction, I suppose, is an obvious one, but any more subtle ones? More subtle, I mean, usually there's things like the disappearance of the market for the product that you're making, uh, so you know, the, the market has gone... Um, Prices have declined, so new competitors entered the market. Interest rates have gone up, um, so the expected return on assets should have gone up. There's, there's a, a variety of triggers that are, are kind of helpfully listed in the standard for you to consider, but really the underlying question is, has something happened that means that I'm not so convinced as I was that I'm going to recover this value? Yeah, so even like things like the poor, like if the economic environment changes and things like that, that can have an impact on what yes. cash flows you think you're going to get from the asset. Yes. And like Dave says then, the standard sort of breaks it down, doesn't it, between internal triggers, which might be your, dest- your destruction <laughs> example, or external triggers, things that are going on in the market. Correct. So once you've either tested goodwill, for example, or you've got a trigger, what is the actual test? What do you have to do? So the test, first of all, says, well, let's identify what we're testing. Uh, So I need to work out what is the the smallest group of assets that generates uh, largely independent cash flows, called a cash-generating unit. Um, And that might be, you know, your factory. Um, So it's the fixed assets in the factory, it's the building itself, it's the machine unit. Uh, You might, in fact, be allocating goodwill to that. You you need to identify what is your cash-generating unit and the carrying amounts that relate to that. And you then need to compare that carrying amount with the higher, uh, with the recovery amount, which is the higher of value in use. So what's the value to you of continuing to use those uh, those assets? Or what you could get for it in a sale, so fair value, less cost of sale. And if either of those values, the value in use or fair value, is higher than your current carrying value, 
the news is good, you don't have an impairment. Mm -hmm. And it, maybe you don't need to calculate both of them, if one of them's higher, then, then you you're, can, done. you're done. Yeah, okay. So really checking what's on the balance sheet in comparison to, like you said, what you can get for it. And again, just linking back to our other podcast, when you get into value and use and fair value, that's when you get into your cash flow models and what should be included. Absolutely. One of the other things you mentioned there is a cash generating unit. Yeah. My experience is that in itself can cause a whole raft of questions and problems. It can. How, like, what sort of things do you see where you know people struggle with cash generating units? Well, I think... In many cases, people attempted to look at a very high level to identify their cash generating units and say, well, all of my cash flows for my business are interdependent in some way, and therefore can I just test for impairment at a, uh, at a, at a group level? When in fact, in, in many uh, uh, industries, the CGU is at a much, much lower level. So if you think about retail, for example, um, if you've got a, a, a network of stores uh, across a country, stores that are uh, you know, in different towns, the, the cash flows arising on your store from where I'm from in, in, in Birmingham uh, are likely to be largely independent from the cash flows from the store in London. Like the same customers will not be visiting both. Uh, so actually, as a, in a retail sector, for example, you typically start off with the assumption that my, my CGU is the store. Uh, and so if you have a trigger, um, so you know, economy in Birmingham turns down, whereas the economy in London stays, uh, stays high, then you might have an impairment test in Birmingham, and, but not, a same, not the same trigger in London. Yeah. So identifying CGUs is actually quite a, quite a tough task, and that's before we get into talking about you know, things like goodwill. Oh, which moving directly on. And just on your point there, I suppose if you don't identify the correct level, so back to your Birmingham, London store, if you just looked at that as like the whole of the UK, then you might have an impairment in Birmingham, which is effectively being shielded by the good cash flows in London. So that's why I suppose why this standard is pushes you to the lowest level yes. first. Yeah. So <laughs> moving to your exact next point is how does goodwill fit into that? That's a that's an interesting challenge because actually when when the standard was being developed, I think the standard setters were aware that conceptually they would quite like to run with a model that says people would allocate their goodwill to all the CGUs within the business. If you've made a big acquisition, let's say a portfolio of, of retail stores, conceptually, if you're looking at your return on those, those assets, you might allocate the goodwill that you've got uh, to each store on some, some basis. That's conceptually what you might do, but practically that's not what people do. That's not how people manage business. Yeah. Uh, so the standard setters said that what you must do is you must allocate goodwill down to your but uh, they won't insist on you allocating it any further down as long as you're, you're not monitoring your return on net assets, including some allocated goodwill at a lower level. So they were trying to say, we won't make you put in new systems, but we do think you should allocate goodwill at the very least to segments because effectively you're telling yeah. management that's how you're managing the business <laughs> yeah. and assessing the return on, on the investments that you've made. So with that rule then comes a little bit of complexity in that the, you may well have a two-stage test for, for impairment. Uh, so sticking with our retail example, we, we have a trigger for, for an impairment test in Birmingham. And uh, what the standard would say is you look for your triggers at the lowest CG levels first. And if you've got any impairments, you take those impairments at that lower level. Then you aggregate your CGUs into that smallest group to which you can allocate the goodwill, have allocated the goodwill, and do your impairment test at that aggregated level. 
And at that stage, if you have any impairment, it gets allocated to the group of one first. Okay, wow. So you, you lowest level first, and then you do a second test yeah. on goodwill. And there you said as well, the standard obviously says no higher than operating saving. It could be lower than it that be. if they... Um, yeah. I have certainly seen examples yeah. where people have pushed goodwill a very long way down, but there are many, uh, many companies out there who don't allocate it any further than, yeah. than they have to because they don't use that data in their, in their day-to-day business. Okay, brilliant. So the levels thing, I think, is always a tricky area of the standard. The other thing I see, which would be good to get your perspective on, is that apples with apples, what's in your CGU and what's in your cash flows, those things. Do you see lots of issues and difficulty in that area? Um, The whole premise of of the impairment testing regime is to try and compare um, apples with apples. So ensure that your cash flows are consistent with what you're what you're testing. So actually one of the practicalities of the of the impairment test is the standard says you should test your non-current assets. So I should test my goodwill and my fixed assets. People rarely prepare forecasts that look at those assets in isolation. They'll usually be preparing forecasts for the business. So it might be my, my uh, retail stores in the in the southwest of England. Well those retail stores have inventory, they have receivables, they have they have payables. Mm-hmm. Um, so if your cash flows are forecast on the basis of, at that business level, the movements in working capital, then you should include the working capital in the assets that you're testing for, for impairment to make sure you are comparing uh, apples and apples at that basic level. Yeah. yeah, so I think I know we're straying slightly into cash flows there, but it is really, you know, okay, identify your CGU, look what it's in it, but then make sure you are comparing it yeah. to the same thing on the other side. Absolutely. Otherwise you can either mask impairment or actually have an impairment that maybe doesn't even need to be there, so Absolutely. tricky area. Other thing just to touch on is what do you do with corporate assets, so things like your head office, how does that fit into an impairment test? The It's unlikely that your corporate office will generate with your accountants sitting in there. So it, it wouldn't be tested as a, as a CGU by itself. The standard there gives us a couple of options. One is if you can allocate your corporate assets on a reasonable and consistent basis to your CGUs, then it suggests you simply allocate the head office on uh, and the assets. And we're talking about head office, you might not be talking about central IT systems, which yeah. is quite often a much bigger number. Or indeed brands. Yeah, brands. Um, so uh, you would allocate them on that reasonable and consistent basis. If, however, it is uh, in the judgment of management, uh, based on the evidence you've got, it's just too difficult to allocate on that reasonable and consistent basis, then you're into two-stage impairment testing again. So uh, the standard would have you test your CGUs excluding the corporate assets from impairment, taking any impairments that are, that are indicated, and then put it all together corporate assets together with the CGUs they support all together uh, and test at that combined level and if you have an impairment then you would apply that to the corporate assets and indeed the underlying assets on a provisor basis. So just on that point for that and goodwill we talked a little bit about allocation are there any any rules in the standard of how to allocate the impairment once you come up with it? Oh yes (laughs) of course there are. (laughs) Oh yes so if you've got goodwill in the CGU that you're testing that's the first thing to go. Get rid of that first. Get rid of that first. <laughs> Thereafter, you allocate, in principle, on a pro rata basis to your to all of your non-current assets, whether they're tangible or intangible. But 
uh, you're not allowed to write down any individual asset below the higher of three numbers. Now, one of those numbers is zero. So that's, <laughs> you can write it off. I can we ignore that one. <laughs> you can't go negative. Now, the other is if you can determine it, the value in use of the individual asset, which is unlikely to be able to determine, or alternatively, its fair value. And so what I see fairly frequently in practice is that when you hit that test, you've got a lot, if you've got a lot of property and there's an observable market value for the property, you might not be able to allocate that impairment pro rata to that property because you can't write it down below its fair value. Yeah. So you end up having to allocate the remainder of the impairment charge to the other assets. So you might quite frequently see that property values stay roughly where they were, yeah. uh, but intangibles get written off. Yeah, okay. So there, after goodwill, there's no sort of real order of allocation, but you almost have this allocation and reallocation so that you yeah. don't take any assets down too low. That's right. You're not allowed to take any assets down too low, so it becomes quite an iterative process. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's a time-consuming process, which I guess is, again, one of the reasons why when it came to testing goodwill, which is standard set to say you should test every year, they didn't insist on you testing it every year and yeah. they gave you a bit of time to do it. Yeah, big job for everyone every year. Yeah. Okay, so probably last thing as we come towards the end of the podcast is I'm always intrigued to know what's going on at the standard setter. So impairment, fairly old standard, but I think it's sneakily getting some airtime at the board. Yes, it's a fairly old standard and it's, it's fair to say it's a fairly unpopular standard <laughs> as well. It's not consistent with you know, the equivalent under US GAAP, but they have their own slightly bizarre rules in, in, in places. But the, the concept in, in the impairment standard of, of working out what is the value in use for an asset um, has always been something that uh, has created some difficulties in practice and amongst the, the valuations professionals talking about pre-tax cash flows discounted at a pre-tax rate, you know, that's not how valuations no. practices work. Yeah. So the standard setters are having another look and you know, one of the options that's very firmly on the table there is to say, well, should we just move to a, a model that says should be fair value? to determine what our recoverable amount is. Um, and that, I think, is something that would have plenty of support in practice and we were certainly closer to where the US is. Yeah. And you know, make valuations professionals happy, which, you know, dealing with valuations professionals, you know, some of them can be quite miserable. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> you just lost us a load of uh, numbers there, thanks, Dave. I don't have the same view. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm jesting, but actually, to, um, to move, it, move the standard to something that the professionals themselves recognise as a valuation basis yeah. uh, is, is clearly uh, something that would be desirable. So yes, having spent many years on the stocks, they, they are having another good look at them. I'm proposing to get rid of pre-tax discount rates, which is right. very exciting. I feel like I won't have any, any, anything to do in my life. Okay. I'll just have to record podcasts forever uh, if that question well, goes. I, I think <laughs> impairment testing, even when you move to, to fair values, you know, for the vast majority of assets we're testing, there's not an observable market no. value. So you're, you're in, in the world of estimating what the fair value would be. And estimates and judgments is a happy hunting ground for accountants everywhere. So I think that services will still sure. work on, yeah. Oh, thank you. That's good. Well, thank you very much, Lord Dave, for <laughs> joining us in the <laughs> studio. Do you have any parting words before you leave us? On impairment, I think one of the critical skills in impairment testing is to try and minimise the gap in years between the trigger event and the actual white gap. <laughs> um, it's actually an area that is of continual high interest to regulators. Yeah. Um, so I certainly see, see here in the UK that the FRC continue to focus on this as a, as a key estimation area where they are looking for reasonable and supportable numbers to support yeah. the, the valuation. So it's, it's an area that remains 
under intense focus and is a provider of a steady stream of queries. Okay, thank you very much. Great parting word there. So we talked a little bit around IS36, the model. So when do you do an impairment test? What is an impairment? Maybe some of those tricky areas about levels of testing, so cash generating units, and then some great updates there on the board and what regulators are looking for. So thanks for joining us. That's the end of today's podcast. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.